You know that the New Testament is part of the Bible, and we're going to turn to the New Testament this hour. Um, I, I heard Johnny Ramsey say when he was alive, he said, I've never known anybody who really knew the New Testament who didn't know the Old Testament. The way he put it was, any New Testament scholar has got to be an Old Testament scholar. I'm not a scholar, but I, I think that the Old Testament's so foundational. Tomorrow morning in our Bible class, we're going to look at how it all fits together anyway as part of the lesson that we're going to be presenting. But I'd like to take you to the New Testament. Uh, we'll be in the book of Ephesians here in a little bit. But I want to set this up by looking at an article. As you see, the title for this session is, is Taking Root in the Workplace. What does Scripture have to say that can help us when we're on the job? And how to navigate what's so challenging and what you deal with Monday through Friday. Maybe you work all seven days of the week. Uh, I know some are working on Saturday. These are very practical things from Paul that can help us in that regard. Uh, Fortune magazine came out with uh, an article not long ago called Resume Bloopers. And I think it's funny to hear how people, without somebody to check them or to evaluate what they've written, to see what they have to say. And in the course of uh, these uh, resumes that they had written, people had actually said things like this. One woman wrote on her resume, My reason, reason for leaving my last job, maturity leave. I don't think that's what she meant. There was another fellow who wrote and he said that my employer made me a scapegoat, the same as my three previous employers had. And there was another lady, or man, I believe it was a man, who said, please do not misconstrue my 14 jobs as job hopping. I have never quit a job. <laughs> well, you know, workplace and workplace co-workers can provide a lot of, of humor but sometimes it's just not funny at all. When you begin to, to think about how uh, people have, uh, have, and they come into a workplace with dysfunction and they, and they bring that on out, it affects the people around them. Uh, LinkedIn, for example, did a survey of the top 10 challenges that American workers face today. And you begin to look at some of those challenges. They say that there are uh, frustrations with coworkers, uh, frustrations with managers, a lack of support, a supportive team, workplace politics. I mean, these are all the things that so many of us could say that are sources of the frustrations that we feel in the workplace. Robert Half is the leading staff agency in the world since 1948. And, and they talk about how somebody can be such a, a great uh, potential employee on paper. But so often what you get is not what you see on paper. And a lot of the reason why is that they seem to lack what we call soft skills. That they, they might be brilliant, but if they irritate and inflame the people all around them, they're going to subtract more than they add to the workplace. We're not surprised when we begin to read about the challenges on the job. Because we know that we're talking about worldliness. And we're talking about being out in the world. And we expect that that's going to take place. We're going to encounter individuals who are just like that individual there. Whether we, whatever intercourse that we're having in business with those folks, we come across this. But the question is, when we turn that around, is what is it like 
For the people who work with you and me, what do they encounter? Do they have horror stories as the result of being around us? It should not be that way. And even though God has given us talents and time and opportunity to work our jobs, He does so realizing that there's another deeper purpose to be fulfilled even beyond providing for our material needs. And that is impacting a lost world with the influence of Jesus Christ. So when we think about what we're looking at this morning in the imperatives that we're going to be looking at in Ephesians chapter 4, we're looking at something that's so vital and so simple And yet that's missed so often. When you begin to think about what the Apostle Paul is doing, he makes this contrast in Ephesians chapter 4, about verse 17, he, he starts talking about how you're different from the world that you've come out of. And the way that you know that is that you have stripped off the old man, you have spruced up your mind. And that you are to stand out in the environment in which you find yourself. And the way he puts that is, you have put off the old man. You have renewed your mind and you have put on the new man. Now Paul actually does use a metaphor that is as we would think that it is. He is saying that when you come to Christ, you take off the old. This is no longer who you are. And now you have a new way of thinking about things and you put on the new. It is like you are. In other words, you're not going to in the heat of the moment take this off and put on the other. Because... You've been one to Christ. And the way he does that in the book of Ephesians is he uses the word walk. We're going to talk about how to find out what books are about. The word walk is very important to the book of Ephesians. It's found eight times. And it simply means one's manner of life, one's behavior. And it's very obvious from what the Apostle Paul is saying here that our behavior is important to our reaching the world. And that Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 is not as concerned with uh, how we treat one another. There are other places in the New Testament that deal with internal unity. But when Paul is speaking about walking in a new way, in Ephesians chapter 4, he is talking about how the way that we walk impacts the people around us. That's why he says, Therefore do not be unwise, but wise, understanding what the will of the Lord is, redeeming the times because the days are evil. He's saying that when you leave the assemblies and you get away from the security of one another and you go out there, out into the world, that there needs to be a walk that's taking place that makes a difference. And one of the places we're going to find ourselves is either if we're not old enough, we're at school, or it's going to be in the workplace. And I love the way the Apostle Paul sets this up for us. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for you are members one of another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath, and neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole still no more, but rather let him work with his hands that which is good that he may have to give to those who are in need. And let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but rather that which is good for the use of edifying that it may give grace to those that hear it and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you were sealed under the day of redemption. And let all wrath and anger and clamor and bitterness and slander be put away from you with all uh, malice and be kind one to another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through 32, we have a checklist 
The Apostle Paul is saying, here is how you can take Christ and Christianity out of the building, into the schoolhouse, or into the workplace, where you're going to find yourself Monday through Saturday. How can you so conduct yourself that you make the difference that God has you out there to make? And here are the principles as we walk through them. Number one, if you are going to take root in the workplace and make a difference, you've got to be truthful. Now, as you look in verse 25, you see that here again, Paul is doing this contrast. There's this old man and this new man difference. The old man is characterized by falsehood. All right? And the new man is characterized by truth. Hey, do we ever see examples of falsehood in the workplace? How about the individual who flatters their superiors in order to move up in the company? Or the person who plays fast and loose with the truth and in order to avoid getting in trouble or to make that sale. And here we are in that environment. It's dog eat dog. And we kind of convince ourselves that this is just the way that it's got to be. If you're going to survive in this world, then you've got to act just like that. Well, God knew that the prince of this world had a particular way of behaving. And he knew that Christians were going to have to live and survive in that world. And he says that you're not going to do that. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. Incidentally, did you know that that's a quotation from the book of Zechariah? Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 16. It's one of only six times, six verses from the book of Zechariah that are quoted in the New Testament. It's the only one that is quoted outside of the Gospels. And what we see is, is that God hates that false attitude. I mean, through the prophet, he explicitly says, you're going to behave that way? You have my wrath, my hatred of that behavior. So God says, I want you to stand out. I want you to be there as one who is honest and truthful in that environment. That means you're not going to give in to that temptation to twist or distort the truth in order to get ahead in the work that you're doing. And of course, that's the same with regard to academics in school. That you're not going to, even if you see people around you who are cheating, you're not going to do that. Because you know that you're a new person. You don't live the way that the world lives. You know, the Bible talks about, in some of the Psalms, the Psalms uh, serve different purposes. Some of the Psalms are to comfort us in times of sorrow. Other Psalms are what we call imprecatory Psalms. where We're saying, God, the enemies of you, I want you to do this to them. There are actually psalms of worship that they would sing as they were going to the temple to worship. The songs of ascent, as we call them. But there's also what we call didactic psalms. Teaching psalms. And in one of those, the psalmist says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell in your holy hill. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Psalm 15, 1 and 2. So here you have in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God saying, you, my children, I want you to be truthful even if it hurts you as you might see it. You know, we live in a world that that denies absolute truth. And we find ourselves trying to navigate through that because we do believe in absolute truth. We believe that there is a definite right and wrong, and so does the world. You know, they just don't want to admit it and apply it to their own lives. You think about the college admission scandals that's been going on this year. And and society responds to that by saying, here are the wealthy 
and the well-placed and the well-to-do, and they're lying and cheating in order to get ahead. They're bringing in the athletics department and the presidents, and, and they're trying to get an unfair advantage. It's not right. It's dishonest. But here they are in this postmodern quandary. They don't believe in absolute truth. They don't believe in an objective right and wrong. And God places you and me as His children into that environment. And He says, I want you to show them what honesty and truthfulness looks like. How powerful that is. How transforming it is to the people who are around you. And so if you want to take root in your workplace and help the seed of truth to grow, then you've got to be truthful. But then second, you've got to control your temper. That's the next thing that is said in in verse 27. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. Here's what I want to observe with you. Does the Bible say that we shouldn't get angry? Not at all. In fact, it's assumed that we're going to get angry. Hey, let me ask you. Are you going to get angry in the workplace? Are there going to be things that really upset you? Are there going to be behaviors by the people that are around you at work, especially if it's selfishness or carelessness, and it doesn't just affect them, it affects you as well? You're going to get incensed about that. But the question is, how do you handle that? Are you going to handle that by crossing the line into sin in the way that you respond? We know in the workplace that there are folks like that, don't we? That they are the proverbial tempest in the teapot. And they are ready to fly off the handle at the slightest offense and grievance that they have. God says, Christian, I'm putting you in that environment. And when you're pushed like that and you're pressured, I don't want you to respond that way. Sure, get upset. Sure, do something about it. But make sure that you keep control of yourself. And that's really what it is. It's a matter of self-control and self-discipline. The the wisdom writer says, like a city uh, whose walls is broken... And without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Proverbs 28, 25. And so as we consider ourselves pushed in that environment, we're going to make sure that we keep control of our spirit. Because our self-control and our self-discipline is being seen by the people around us. I I was reading uh, the uh, the autobiography of Ilya Nastasi. Uh, I don't know if any of you are tennis people or not, but he was uh, a tennis pro uh, who uh, was was really good, very talented, but he was known, for his, his nickname was Nasty Nastasi. And in, in the middle of that book, he writes about a match that he had in 1975, a, a master's tennis match in Sweden. And his opponent was Arthur Ashe. Now, Nasty Nastasi had that reputation, but Arthur Ashe was forever known as the gentleman of tennis. He was such a gentleman that he was asked in an unprecedented manner to help to write the rules of competition that were be enforced in tennis. So in that match in 1975... Here's Nastasi up to his uh, usual antics. He's jeering, he's taunting, and he's cursing. And in the middle of that match, it got to the point that Arthur Ashe just threw down his racket. And he walked off the court. He says, I'm afraid I'm getting to the point where I'm going to lose my self-control. I would rather lose the match than to lose my self-respect. And then walking off the court, he wrote the rules. He knew exactly what was going to happen. That by merely laying down his racket and walking off the court, he was disqualifying himself. But his integrity meant more than professional success. And here's the thing, that's how his adversary, his professional counterpart, described the events. 
Ash was humble. He would not have said it himself. What an example. When you insert Christianity into the work environment that can be so hostile where everybody's losing their head, the child of God gets in there and maintains self-control. You see, God has us in the workplace and in the school place in order to exert this influence. But then third, I'd like you to notice with me that if you are going to take root in the workplace, you've got to avoid weak moments. There's verse 27. Now, as you begin to read this admonition, and this is a series of imperatives, Paul goes from one command to another command. And in this third command in this series, he says something that many people attach to the previous verse. That don't give the devil an opportunity when it comes to your anger. And I believe there's application there, but I think the application is broader than that. I believe what Paul is saying is, in any circumstance, at school or at the workplace, don't give the devil an opportunity because he's looking for a way in. So as I think about that in practical terms, I begin to think about how the devil can get a foothold in the workplace. And this is not exhaustive, but consider a few examples. The devil gets a foothold in our lives, in the workplace, through peer pressure. Our counterparts who are not Christians, they speak a certain way, they think a certain way, they act a certain way, they have a certain attitude, and the pressure is on us to conform. But Paul says, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is perfect and acceptable and right in the eyes of God. But another way that we let the devil have a a foothold, we give him an opportunity is when we put prophets over morals and ethics. You know, so often what matters to a company is the bottom line. And Jesus, in all that he says in that greatest sermon ever preached, spends more time on worry about things than he does anything else. And he kicks it off by saying, no man can serve two masters. For he will either love the one and hate the other. He'll cling to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or material things. So when I'm in the workplace, I've got to make sure that I'm not choosing money over God. But then we also have another circumstance, and that is losing balance in our lives. It's so easy for us in the world in which we live to find ourselves spending so much time on the job that we begin to let other things be neglected. It's easy for us to find ourselves in a position to where we're spending so much time at work, we're not spending enough time with God and with His people and with our family. We've got to be careful not to lose balance. Statistics show that over half of all affairs in marriage occur on the job. And here's how that can happen so innocently. There's so much that pulls us together, whether it's shared work problems or work stresses or eating meals with co-workers or traveling for work with co-workers, that we put ourselves in a position to where we're spending so much time with these co-workers that when we come home at the end of the day, we're depleted and we're tired and we've used up our energy. And you throw into that mix that we are trying to run a household and there's the concerns of the children and we can put so much into the work that we have nothing left for our mate. And the emotional bond gets weaker. But what we're doing is we're spending so much time with a co-worker of the opposite sex that we're building the glue in that relationship. And so, so many people who fall prey to this report having good and happy marriages. But it's a matter of having lost balance. 
And if we can keep our eyes open and we see ourselves falling into this position, how much better to either get transferred or to change the job than to destroy our families and to destroy our souls. Losing balance can happen so easily when we give the devil an opportunity through that. But then also, there's improper rest and care. And isn't that something we're always fighting for? I stand before you as somebody who had four hours last night, so I know it's hard sometimes to do that. But taking care of ourselves, being stewards of our, our, our lives and all the resources God gives us is important. And then not worrying. Easier said than done. We have all the responsibilities that God puts uh, on us. But then we also have the responsibilities in the workplace. And we carry the burden of that because we want to be responsible. But sometimes what we do is we take God out of the equation and we begin to, to bear burdens that we should share. You know, I love 1 Peter 5, 7. It says, casting all your cares on Him because He cares for you. I heard it explained to me a long time ago that what God is saying is, I want you to throw the rod in. So often what we do is we cast it out and then we reel it back. God, I give this to you. And then we bring it back and we worry about it some more. He's saying throw the rod in so that you can't bring it back. When you think about what, what is being said here, Peter says the devil is out there like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Paul says don't give him a way in. Don't allow that to happen. And one way that we do that is by keeping balance in the workplace. Keeping balance in our lives. Isn't this practical, what Paul is saying to us? He's saying, let me meet you where you are, Monday through Saturday. How can you take root in the workplace? And he's giving us all these ways that we interact outside of the body of Christ in our, our assemblies. He gives us another one. If you want to take root in the workplace, then you need to work hard. Verse 28. You can tell that a culture is slipping if you look at their work ethic. So often... We feel like that we're justified by trying to get away with doing as little as possible in the workplace. You ever gone into a restaurant or gone into a, a store? And as you go in there, you see three or four people standing around. And maybe there's one person who's doing all the work. Do you ever stand there and go, as you look at those three or four, wow, they must be wonderful Christians. You don't, do you? You don't equate that with shining the light for Christ. Is it possible? Remember again, Paul is making contrast. He is saying to us, you have put off one behavior and you're going to do the other. He says, let him that stole steal no more. Is it possible to steal from the workplace? Is it possible to steal time? Do we steal time when we come in late? Do we steal time when we're not working, when we are on the clock working? Is it possible to steal money from the workplace? Do we do that when we make copies? When we use stamps? When we use other resources that actually belong to the company and not to us? Do we ever steal other resources like other people's time by keeping them from doing their job? Or stealing intellectual property rights? And so when we think about the fact that it's possible for us to find ourselves in that position, Paul says don't do that. Instead, I want you to work with your hands what is good. And when you do that, not only do you find yourself not being parasitic, but you find yourself being productive. You can help somebody else who's in need, who needs you to provide. And so as we think about how God wants us to take root in the workplace, He's saying, I want you to work hard. And this challenges us. 
This is not something that we can say that we always have just conquered. And so Paul gives it to us so that we can aspire, we can live up to that standard that he's laying there. But then next, I'd like you to notice with me. The Apostle Paul says that to take root in your workplace, I want you to use wholesome words. There's not unwholesome words on the, on the job, are there? You don't hear unwholesome words at school, do you? Just think about the ways in which you do. People who speak arrogantly, who speak from pride. How about words of gossip and slander? How about filthy words and, and curse words? And it's hard. When you find yourself in that environment, you can become desensitized to that. And if you're not careful, you can find yourself prone to saying, that's just how you, you work. That's just how you speak. You know, when we think about the, the life that God wants us to live. I had it explained to me in premarital counseling. When Kathy and I were getting married, I, the, the man who sat down with us at, at Fulton University, he said there's two approaches to life. He says there's one approach that we can call the pie approach. In a pie, you cut into several pieces. And each one of those slices represents an area of your life. Recreation slice, the work slice, the friend slice, the church slice, and so forth. And so some people have that attitude that says, oh, I'm at church. This is, the, this is the church slice. And I act a certain way. I look a certain way. I dress a certain way. But when I get out there and the, on the job, the job slice, I have a different way that I behave and think and act. That's not the way that a Christian is to live. It was, it was shown to me there's another way that's called the, the, the wheel spoke approach. And that is, you have all these spokes on a wheel and there's a hub and the hub is Christ. And those spokes represent all those different areas of life. And in whatever place I find myself, I'm operating from Christ at the hub of my life. You see, Paul is saying, I want you to show folks what wholesome speech looks like. They don't expect it. When there's workplace gossip going on, and you refuse to say something bad about them, but instead say something good to counteract that, oh, they didn't see that coming. Not only that, maybe you did something that you were most responsible for uh, an uh, an accolade or or recognition, but somebody else got that recognition. You don't become a grumbler and 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 upset and bitter about that. Or if somebody's hurting at work, you go up to them and you say, I I notice that things aren't, aren't well. Maybe somebody that nobody else talks to. And you try to encourage them. See, the Lord has us as light and salt in a dark, dark and unsavory place. If you want to take root in your workplace, then you need to use wholesome words. But then the Apostle Paul would say, and I'm a, I must have gone too fast, make God proud. In verse 30, you have to, what to me is the most unique imperative in this entire list of things. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but it happened to me. I was the, the middle misunderstood child. You know, all of us middle children are that. And for some reason, my parents had to say this to me more than to my older sister and my younger brother. You remember who you are. You remember whose you are. You're about to go here or there, wherever it is. Make us proud. I'd like to tell you I always did, but I always knew I needed to. When I think about that particular encouragement, I think about what the Apostle Paul says. He says, You're ambassadors, you're representatives. You're going out into this world and you're trying to reconcile the lost world to me. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. Make me proud. 
And when we think about what he's saying here, in the midst of these other imperatives, for in these other ones, he's talking about how we behave with others. But in this one, he is talking about how we behave with God. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you were sealed under the day of redemption. It disturbs me to think that my behavior could make God something other than proud that could make Him ashamed. And so it motivates me. I realize that the Spirit has revealed His will in passages like this. I realize that in the Old Testament when the Bible says that one grieved the Spirit of God, it says in Isaiah 63 and verse 10 that God fought against Him. I I, I want to make God proud. And I have an opportunity to do that every place that I am. And that includes at school or on the job. Number next, watch your attitudes. In verse 31, we have all of these different old man attitudes. And we won't look at them in depth, but you'll observe them with me. There's bitterness. And bitterness is this mentality that, uh, that is upset that others get what we believe belongs to us. There's wrath and anger. These are manifestations of what the Bible calls works of the flesh. In Galatians 5 and verse 20, to lead to things like outbursts of anger. And we see this happening on the job all the time, don't we? Folks who get angry and wrathful about situations and they cross that line that Paul has already mentioned back in verse 27. And then there are some who clamor. Do you know anybody on the job that's a shouter? If they can tell it to you, they'd rather yell it to you. And these kind of individuals fill the workplace, but you know who's not supposed to be among that number? is Christian. Clamorers, that's what the word means, is to shout or yell. We are to communicate with gentleness. I don't know if any of you are Andy Griffith fans or not. I've enjoyed watching that through the years. And there was an episode about a man and his wife, Fred and Jenny Boone. And Fred and Jenny Boone could not get along. And whenever they were in a room together, they were fighting and she was throwing plates at him. And so Andy decides that he's going to be a counselor and try to work things out between them. And they get to talking nice to one another. And they get to talking hateful to everybody else in town. And so Andy comes back in and he he encourages them to start fighting with one another again so everybody else could have peace. And it's funny on the Andy Griffith show, but it's not funny in real life. God wants us at peace in our families but also on the workplace. And then there's slander. Folks have hurt the reputation of their co-workers so much so that they lose their jobs. Christians will not participate in that. Malice, that's active hostility. So Paul says, take all of these and apply it to your interactions out in the world. And in general, let's summarize by saying, watch your attitude. Well, there's one other. There's an eighth strategy, and that is model Christ in your relationships. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. You need that because you're going to be surrounded in the workplace by unkind, hard-hearted, unforgiving people. And God expects you to respond to that in such a way that you overcome that evil with good. Romans chapter 12 and verse 21. He has you there to demonstrate that comes from an, uh, an attitude of gratitude that says, God's forgiven me so much, I'm going to overlook these faults. And what an impact that has in a workplace that does not see that coming. 
It does not see people who are not ready to respond with evil with more evil. I'm not, I don't just get even, I get ahead. That kind of a mentality. Before every time that I preach, including this session, every time I always pray, God help me to hide behind the cross. So that when people have heard me preach, they leave saying, oh what a savior. And not, oh what a preacher. If that's important in my work, Is it not also something that all of us need to take into the workplace that says, let me hide behind the cross so that when people look at me, they don't see me, but they see the Christ who is in me. Galatians 2 and verse 20. I'm going to model Jesus in all my relationships. I need to do that in the assemblies. I need to do that in my home. But I also need to do it at school and I need to do it in the workplace. You know, when I think about the things that are said here, I, I think about something that happened, and everybody's heard about this. Alfred Nobel was known as the inventor of dynamite. And he became known as the one for whom the Peace Prize was named. But do you know how that transformation started? I found that very intriguing. It started over breakfast one day in 1888. He's sitting there, you know, just like you get on your phones and you, you troll the news sources. The newspaper served very much that way in the end of the 19th century. News, everybody had a newspaper. If you get 14, 16, 18, he was reading one of the newspapers. And one of the newspapers reported his death. A French reporter clumsily confused him with Ludwig, his brother. His brother had died, and instead this reporter said that Alfred Nobel, the king of death, the merchant of death, is dead. He began to read in that column how he was remembered, how that he had made so much money in in this industrial age through this invention. And it's how he was going to be remembered. He had about a decade of his life left and he wholeheartedly turned his focus and his purpose on striving for peace in the world. Suppose this morning you woke up and you opened up your virtual or your real newspaper and there you saw your obituary. How would it read? For what would you be remembered? The Apostle Paul is saying, look, I want you to see that I have you as salt and light in this world. This lesson is about influence. We all have it. And God wants us using it everywhere that we are. There's a phrase that's used a few times in the New Testament that says, you once. And I I love that phrase because what is implied in all three places, in Romans 15.30, in Colossians 3.7, in 1 Peter 2 and verse 10, is that you once were this way, but you're no longer this way. You once walked according to the course of the world. You once worked unrighteousness. You once were not a people, but now you are. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4. You took off the old man. You clothed yourself with Christ. You're a new man. And that's to make a difference wherever you are. In the assemblies. In your home. But also where we spend 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And that's out there in the workplace. There's a text for that. You want to know how God wants you to behave on Monday, Tuesday, and beyond? Go to Ephesians 4, 25-32. And let that be your working challenge day after day. And what a difference you can make.
in taking your part of the city for Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your infinite wisdom, for your great power, for the way in which you love us, the way that you guide us perfectly, even at times, O oh God, when we don't know on our own, and that's so much of the time, how we ought to go. You have left us a, a perfect pattern for how to be the people you want us to be in every corner of our lives. God, I'm so thankful for every man, woman, and young person who's here today. What dedication, what desire they're showing, what interest in spiritual things. Please bless them for that sacrifice of time that they've made. God, help us all to strive to be more conformed to the image of your Son, that we might draw your pleasure and that we might, through your strength, help to change the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.